Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, all right. First, I had to remember to push up the volume on the mixing board so you guys can hear us on the True Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio, Matt Dixon. And you've had the greatest Tuesday you've had all week. But you know what? Uh, markets, not the greatest week we've seen all year. No. No, 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 no. Uh, in fact, uh, I seem to remember looking at the S&P 500 with numbers north of 4450. Today we're at 4350, so it's 100 points lower. It's like a two or like a three percent pullback off of peak right now, and getting knocked around. Matt, what is going on? I, uh, you know, I heard some news that coming out of China that we have some we have some troubling. Is this is this? Real estate. Uh, I'm making like ancient movie references. Is this big trouble in Little China? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, uh, yeah. I I think Kurt Douglas film from way back in the like 80s. I think um, we're but, feeling the effects of it though. Yeah, uh, you know we might. There's there's this old expression that when the U.S. Uh, gets a sniffle, the rest of the world catches a cold, and it's an economic term because uh, a lot of folks. Here, all right, ready for boring history lesson on the radio? Yes. Okay, boring history lesson. Post-World War II, the vast majority of the industrialized world was out of commission. But none of that war was fought in the mainland United States, which meant as soldiers returned home, the economic capacity was centered in the United States. Right? Mm -hmm. So we then execute what was called the Marshall Plan, where the United States starts funding the rebuilding of most of Western Europe and installing military posts and bases uh, as part of a cooperative effort with much of Europe. Later uh, leads toward NATO and so forth, so the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. So nevertheless, the Marshall Plan was about this rebuilding of infrastructure in Europe, but the United States represented close to 95% of global GDP during that era. Wow. So it was the game. And you've heard about like the roaring 50s. Well, that was post-World War II when the United States was supplying pretty much everything to the world for a little while. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been decades since then it's been a while right and and we're now that we've seen the balance of global uh, economic output has certainly shifted right now we've seen europe rebuilt right i mean europe's mm -hmm. been completely rebuilt in fact much of europe western and eastern europe are no longer separated the way they were even back into the 80s and early 90s as you know germany's reunified many of those eastern bloc states and soviet states with the fall of the soviet union have all kind of rejiggered into a more generally capitalist system i say generally because we all know there's things like democratic socialism in some of the Scandinavian countries and Switzerland and so forth, or different versions thereof. All right. Uh, Switzerland, more capitalist than people mm -hmm. give them credit for. Okay. Uh, countries like Norway, more democratic socialist. And we're not even going to get into the show today about how Norway has a lot more sovereign wealth than other countries. So it kind of skews the data when you've got like $80,000 per capita of natural resource that the state can spend on people, because it sort of makes it look more attractive than it might be financially. But Switzerland's a decent model to investigate, because they're a lot more capitalist than we realize. But that's aside. We're talking about China. Yeah. The 
not dark horse candidate at all in this race. China is the, I believe, neck and neck. I don't know if China or India has the larger population. I still think it's China, though, yeah. that has the largest it's population close. for a single country on the planet. Mm -hmm. Okay, So in, in really simple terms, that's a lot of manpower and yeah. woman power. Right. Let's not, you know, throw people out of there. We're just going to person power. How about a lot that? of manufacturing power? There is a lot of economic power. China has been growing like crazy. Yeah. And for I just, decades. I just saw that statistic. Twenty percent of all of the manufacturing right now in the world is coming out of China. Yeah. And it makes and, sense. China is a net exporter, as I understand it, where yeah. the United States is a net importer and of goods. The U.S. is kind of close. We're 18 percent. The United States produces a lot more than people realize. That's a statistic that gets sort of uh, butchered a lot of the time. Yeah. Because I would say so. what happens is we've seen a decline in the percentage of jobs in manufacturing, but not a decline in manufacturing output. Mm -hmm. We've automated a ton of it. So much more roboticized manufacturing. So our productive output isn't way, way down. It's, it's just employed fewer people. Yeah, it's changed. Yeah. And so there's this discussion about the United States has become more of a service economy. And what that means is it's... Uh, services now. They, services are kind of a barbell, is the issue, right? You've got the services are, that are things like customer service representative types, where you can't necessarily outsource it. These are literally like the the restaurants and the folks that are in the service industry that we hear about, waiters and waitresses and folks that are delivering a customer service, and you can't outsource that well. Then you've got sort of other services that we attempt to outsource, and it doesn't necessarily work that well, right? Chip manufacturing. Call centers, right? Oh, hey, I've called, and now I'm getting somebody that English is not their primary language, yeah. and we're not getting the results that we're looking for. So we played that where which labor can it be outsourced or not. We've had discussions on this show many times about why labor gets exported. That's not the purpose of today's show. Yeah. Okay. We can't dive into the weeds this right. soon into the show. So... As we look at the, the, the whole economic landscape of our service economy, though, we're the ones that are doing things like developing software and a lot of product innovation. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, Apple, they design it in California primarily, uh, or a lot is designed in Texas, right? Uh, a lot of uh, actually up in Portland, or, or you know, so we've got the Pacific Northwest has a, a uh, a technology focus up in the urban areas. So Portland and Seattle both have a lot of sort of software and fin or technology. Let's just call it technology in general. Mm -hmm. uh, same for Silicon Valley. The same for the Research Triangle in the Carolinas. The same for uh, I think Atlanta's still got a pretty good hub. And then you've got isn't Missouri really growing with that? I've it, heard it that very well could be right. I Missouri's mean, there's a lot of places that are working out. Um, Texas has got a number of epicenters, including Austin, and then the Dallas-Fort Worth area is a biggie. So we know that there are areas in areas. I mean, Phoenix is still huge, uh, but but that um, that's a mixed bag of population. There's a lot of people working. There's a lot of people that retire too. So that's a different uh, economic center there. Nevertheless, that's the service economy, and China does a lot more of the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Okay, what is going on, Matt? That's got everybody saying like, "Well, what's up with China?" I think one of their largest real estate developers filed bankruptcy. I don't know if it's official yet. Have they filed? I think they're in the process of it, aren't they? I think that's the question, right? Yeah. Was, will they have to declare bankruptcy? So the China Evergrande Group, 
our Evergrande Real Estate. Yeah. You've done a little homework on this, right? I haven't done too much. Oh, what do you know so far? I just know that they're in a really bad financial state, and I think, I think they hold like, I mean, it was thirteen hundred different projects that they have going. And what was the other statistic? I read it. I earlier. read it's about three hundred billion in real estate holdings and development. Yeah, I did see that. So this is not a small company. It's currently ranked 122nd on the Fortune Global 500. So 500 biggest companies in the world, and this is ranked 122nd. So we're not talking about a little organization here. Evergrande is is K Grande, right? That's, yeah, they're that means huge. Big. So if if that's the case, and it Evergrande were to go bankrupt. Uh, first of all, the question is, I think most of us know, and if you do not, okay, you're about to get a little insight, that the Chinese economy is managed. They're a state capitalist model. You ever heard of that before? Yes. And I just looked it up. 280 cities. That's how much ownership cities. they have. Two hundred. They own literally 280 cities. That's a lot of cities to own. Yeah. These guys are huge. So we'll talk a little bit on the program today about some of the economic theory behind this. And um, I, I've got to tell you that this is not my expertise, but it's really interesting to me. Okay. So uh, first of all, if we're talking about China and their economy, right? What's a state capitalist economy, Matt? Go ahead and explain it to the listeners. You're <laughs> going to do a I mean, I can do it, but you're going to do it oh, a that's lot. That's the whole point. Is how you're, you're supposed to, to. So it's there, there's a capitalist model, meaning they are companies that are being run for profit. Uh, and, and there is still some private ownership in China. But the right? government's really just calling the shots. The government gets sort of the first order of demand. If yeah. You know. They get to determine uh, certain elements. And, and what happens is if you go against the government, it can be really a bad idea. Uh, there was a recent one. I think it was Didi Motors is what it is. I think something like that. Mm -hmm. It was the equivalent of like a, a Chinese Uber kind of company. Yeah. And they went public evidently in opposition to what the government told it was was attempting to get them to do right so basically said well we're going to do this on our own in spite of you and then the chinese government has essentially bankrupted them so they right. ipo'd and then they torpedoed the price yeah i mean it's a communist country they yes they they have a lot of control and they're not afraid to exercise it right and again there may be some of you out there that are way deeper into the policy weeds than me and you know more about what's going on i fully admit that my level of expertise in the way China operates is low. Right. But I can tell you that I know something about economics, and I think what's going on with Evergrande is relevant. And I want to share with you why you care as investors, because, again, what happens is, depending on how you measure it, right, the United States used to be 95% of global GDP. Now I believe it's less than 50 and declining. And in terms of large, we're still depending on how you measure it, the largest economy in the world, and certainly the largest per capita, based on the number of productive citizens that we have right in the workforce. But some people measure China's economy as bigger than ours in certain categories. Again, debatable, but what we know is China is the second largest economy now in the world. So in fact, I think China 
if, if this this is pull, stat pulled from memory, but if I recall, China is actually bigger than the entire European Union. Uh, if maybe if you take out like France and Germany, it's bigger that than the European Union. Me. I think European Union, including everybody, may still have higher GDP if you take the whole group than China, but I don't think they have higher GDP than the United States. But again, that let's not quote me on that one because I could be wrong. But why do you care? Why are we dropping like, oh, great financial show where you're talking about we get it. There's economies. They make money or whatever. And China's got real estate and there's a company that's going to get sick or something. What do you mean? We catch a cold and we all get sick or uh, does China need to mask up? No, that's that's not what I mean. This is an economic analogy where if something goes wrong in China. What if it's like the the first thread on a sweater and you start pulling and the whole thing starts to unravel? Yeah. If you want to know what the heck we're talking about, stick around. We're going to grab a quick break, and when we come back... It's going to get interesting. Yeah, we're going to unpack some of that or unravel that sweater some more, but uh, we got to take this important, obscene profit break first. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. If you were just joining us, we are going to unravel a sweater. Is that what we said? And if you're wondering, like, what does that mean? You got to catch the podcast to get caught up. Hook it up tomorrow at littlejohnfs.com. It's under the Educate tab. And speaking of Educate, Matt, we were talking during the break about Evergrande. You pulled up some some data that I think our listeners could really benefit from. To Should understand. we recap it Yeah, real quick? what's going on? Kay. Recap this thing. So Evergrande Real Estate, they own 1,300 projects across more than 280 cities in China. So okay. they're, they're, so they're all a real over estate the development company. Yep, they're okay. all over the place. Catch this. They have borrowed more than $300 billion. Okay, so like some change. Got it. Yeah. And their share price has tumbled 85% this year. Their bond ratings have been lowered. Their global bond ratings are in the toilet. And do you, do you actually have a rating on them, or is it just no, unrated they at just, this point? They, I don't know if it's unrated or not, okay. but they said they're, they're getting flushed. And so, with, in, so considering they've borrowed that much money, the fallout here, they owe money to 171 banks and 120 other financial firms. So they've been borrowing from everyone. People have bought property from this real estate company to be developed. They've already put the money in. They've already paid for it. If they default, those people are out their money. Well, see, this explains something. Um, I understand that at one point they were talking about trying to cash land back out to pay back some of their investors. So that makes some more sense. So this is a development company. Okay. So now we're going to get, uh, like, buckle up, folks. If you want to get an interesting take on this, you got to understand what happens. Uh, first, I want to point something out to you where a lot of folks think that risk has been mispriced in the market right now. Okay. What do I mean by that? Okay. It's not risk like 
falling down the stairs, or, or maybe it is, but risk is sort you of You lose a, enough money and it feels like you yeah, fall down the stairs. <laughs> it's a it's a measure of volatility in the marketplace. And what happens is if you were to try to go put your money in a bank and you're on a fixed income, there's just no returns for your money, and yet we see inflation going up. So you have a real problem, right? You're actively losing purchasing power when inflation goes up more than the interest the bank can pay you so that you can keep up. Right. And that sort of forces you into the corner of saying, well, I have to do something in order to protect my purchasing power, or life's just going to continue to get worse and worse because I won't have enough purchasing power to keep up. So what do we what do we do, right? And what folks have to do is they start shifting into riskier assets, and you just kind of make your way up the ladder. So first, you go from uh, your checking and savings accounts into CDs, and then from CDs, you find yourself getting into uh, high grade, uh, maybe government treasuries, corporate bonds. Right? Next, yeah. Well, treasuries tend to have longer, so but then you get out of that into corporate, corporate bonds, bonds that are that are highly rated, high credit rating corporate bonds. Then you can get into the junk bond spectrum, which is the low credit quality corporate bonds. And this is what I want to talk to you about for a second. After that, you get into maybe unrated bonds entirely, which may or may not be good depending on who's issuing them. Mm -hmm. and, and from there, you get into the stock market. Maybe you start with dividend paying stocks, and then you find yourself into the growth stocks. And depending on whether they're big or small, you continue to escalate the amount of risk you're taking as an investor. So everybody understands there's this spectrum of risk, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it has to do with where you sit on the capital structure. That's a fancy way of saying, hey, if the company goes bankrupt, do I get paid back or not? Like if you're a stockholder, you know what the answer is? Probably not. You're last in yeah. line. Okay. If you're a bondholder, the answer is maybe something because you are in line to be paid back in bankruptcy. Yeah. Because you have a claim on the assets. You have sort of a collateral claim on the assets of the bond or the, or the person issuing the bond. Okay. And then different bonds have different, you know, positions in the capital structure. But essentially, the more risk you take on of default or not getting your money back, the more you have to get paid. Sure. Right. That's just the rules. Yeah. Right. Because nobody's going to take on more risk for no additional reward. You just wouldn't be incentivized to do that. So I told you that story to tell you this one. The spread or the difference between the different categories of risk matters. And one of the things that we look at is, what's the difference between high credit quality and low credit quality? And guess what? You as a listener care. Okay? If you've got terrible credit and you want to go buy a car, you're, you're going to get a loan. You're going to pay a whole bunch more, right? It's like, oh my gosh, why don't I buy it on a credit card? It's like the same thing. Okay? And if you've got great credit, you may get like a 0% offer or 2% or something really low. Bonds are the same way. Bonds are the same way. The spread is the difference between the healthy interest at, or you know the, the, the strong credit, the, the buyer that's likely to pay it has good credit, buyer that's not likely to pay it has bad, and so it costs you more because you're a flight risk. Yeah. Right? And, and we have all kinds of statistics on that too. Well, when... Everybody is participating in the market, and there's lots of demand. What happens is the difference between the people that have good credit and bad credit narrows. You might still, you like, like if you have perfect credit, you yeah. might pay 1% for a car loan, and somebody with lousy credit may pay 5 when they used to pay 10 And that narrowing of spread between those two rates occurs because the default risk is dropping. 
And that's what we've seen in this market is very, very low default rates compared to historical norms. So what people would, I'm now, this is the, the right theory, dear Watson, right? Here's my <laughs> postulate, okay? We're using science language for finance now. The economic theory is that those narrowing spreads suggest that perhaps the market is wrong. What if everybody is sort of in silent agreement and we're all acting like lemmings, but not on data? We're just going, well, everybody else is doing it, so I'll do it. And okay. then something changes and popular opinion shifts. Or there's a default that occurs and everybody wises up and goes, wait a minute, we just can't give anybody a loan that can come in here and fog a mirror. We actually have to check their credit. Yeah. And before you know it, instead of that 5% rate for lousy credit, it blows out again back to 10 so mm -hmm. the spread widens because sure. the risk premium has changed and the risk the market's willing to accept has changed. Now, what happens when over 300 financial institutions between finance companies and banks don't get paid back in they, China? They've got to up those rates to get some money in well, return. Well, maybe not just rates, but they have to start reevaluating everybody because once you touch the hot stove, the next time... You look before you touch the hot stove. Yeah. We did this in the United States post-2008. For many of our listeners, you remember that. Some of you, maybe you don't. Maybe you're young enough that wasn't a thing for you. But banks were making loans to people, and we called them like no-doc loans, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning there was no income documentation. They just said, well, well the, the collateral's enough. So we don't care how much money you make as long as the price of the collateral keeps going up. Okay, that sounds novel until something goes wrong. And therein lies the rub, right? If something goes wrong in China, all of those banks have to And this isn't just something. This is something big. Right. If the 122nd largest company in the Fortune 500 for the globe yeah. goes tankopotamus, it's a technical term, right? <laughs> then what do we do next? There's right? ripple effects from that. There are clearly ripple effects from that. The banking system may have to start looking at this. Like the United States, after 2008, first got really hard to get a loan. The only people that could get loans were people that didn't need them. Mm -hmm. so they had really stellar finances, and they had the money in their pocket. Okay, We saw prices collapse because you couldn't get a loan, which means you couldn't buy. You know, If you couldn't borrow the money to get a house, you couldn't buy it unless you had cash. If you had cash and somebody had to sell, you could just be the low bid. Because there was no other bidder, because nobody could access capital, mm -hmm. right? And we saw banks go under. I mean, I don't know if people around here in the Pacific North, Northwest remember. There used to be this little bank called Washington Mutual. Yep, I remember. Right, that was like everywhere, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and and they died. They got rolled up and absorbed by uh, Chase Bank, mm -hmm. right? Which is part of J.P. Morgan Chase, right? That's the bank side. J.P. Morgan's the investment banking side. So. This stuff can really happen. It has a material impact. Jobs were lost. Prices were affected. Now, if the United States gets a, gets a sniffle and the rest of the world catches a cold, what happens when the world's second largest economy gets a sniffle? Does anybody else catch a cold? I think they do. I think they do, too. And that's my larger concern. People have been asking, what does it take for this market to have its next, like, oopsie and have a, a correcting event? And yeah, I I don't know the answer. Well, everyone just keeps looking, you know, 
inside of our borders like what's going to cause it what's going to cause it and i feel like a lot of people aren't looking overseas they're not looking at the big picture what it needs to be is this repricing of risk if the federal reserve continues to you know a lot of people don't realize like how are they keeping interest rates so low right if you're yeah. not going to the bank and putting money into cd's or buying treasuries there then I think Who's we talked about treasuries? this earlier. The well, I did with you today. The government. That's what quantitative easing is. Yeah. Right? Can you explain that to our listeners just real quick before we go to break, or do we have time? So, um, yeah, I can, because okay. this is one of those longer ones. So keep this in mind, gang. What happens with the the way that you print money is not like most people think. What happens is the, the Treasury Department issues treasuries and then puts them out to market and auctions the treasuries off. And so people that need a place to put capital as a secured store of value in a predictable fashion will then go and buy these things. And how, what's the price set at? Supply and demand. If there's nobody willing to buy them, then the price drops until somebody's willing to buy them. Mm -hmm. Well, who buys treasuries that are paying sub 2% yield for 10 years at a time when we've seen inflation like we have for the last, I don't know, year and a half. Like, like who buys that stuff? The only person that's going to buy that is the government. You know, the answer is nobody. Yeah. Right? Nobody buys that stuff when you go, oh, I'm not going to lock in money that's paying me 1.5% for the next 10 years if inflation's running at 6%. We're 8%. Right? So in essence, we're buying our own interest rates. Well, in essence, kind the of. Federal Reserve banking system, they come in and buy it, and then they put it on their balance sheet, so it never even goes into circulation. But right. that is the money printing. There's right. no printing press running somewhere. So we're kind of buying our own interest rate. We're just changing figures on a balance sheet yeah. and figuring out where to put it. Do we put it on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, or do we put it somewhere on the government's balance sheet? And right now... It's on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. That's what quantitative easing is. And so that's where the demand has come from, and that's what's driving interest rates down. Now, have you heard the word taper getting thrown around? I haven't. Okay, well, we're going to talk about what the heck that means after the obscene profit Hey, I'm break. excited for it. All right, stick around. You want to understand taper? What are we talking about? And again, do I care? You do if you're an investor. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio joining me today. Matt Dixon. And we are talking shop about, it's really this, uh, how does real estate in China matter to you as an investor? Yeah. And the answer is global system and other stuff we've already been talking about. We're going to keep unpacking it. Hook up the podcast if you need to get caught up. It'll be posted tomorrow. Go to littlejohnfs.com. If you go under the What We're About tab, you're going to see Educate, Plan, and Invest. Grab the Educate tab, and you can find all of our former podcasts in there. And this one will be posted tomorrow. But today, This is going to shape up to be a good one, too, so you don't want to miss yeah, this. There's a bunch here to unpack, but it's it, I, what we're trying to do is help connect the dots a little bit because we now live in a connected global system. 
right? Yeah. If you've noticed this, if you've seen the price of things go up at the grocery store or items that you might want to purchase, or if you tried to buy something online and you can't get it as fast as normal, much of that's because China, right? And between COVID and the slowdown in supply chain, and we don't think about, okay, well, literally it comes on a boat from China, gets into the harbor, and then what? Has to get unloaded. Well, with COVID and shutdowns, it takes longer to unload the boat, right? The supply chains are interrupted. So we've disrupted both yeah. supply and demand, and that changes price. But Matt, we were talking about this real estate fiasco, and one of the things we were talking about right before the break is how the how we have been printing money and it's been affecting interest rates, mm -hmm. and this interest rate is really connected to real estate, right? Yeah. Because people borrow money to buy real estate. The real estate is collateral. The, the interest rate is how much it costs you to borrow. Mm -hmm. Okay? We said at the break, the word taper. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because when we went to break, I was like, you mean like tapering off? And I you're said, like, yeah. Absolutely. It is, it's, it's not a financial term. It's a behavior term for the Federal Reserve. So they've talked about doing this. And so I asked you, like, why, are they, why are they tapering, first of all? Mm -hmm. And some of it is because they believe that the economy and inflation are starting to pick up. Right. Okay. And, and so especially inflation. We've already said, well, it's a transitory thing. I don't know. I'm seeing lots of jobs out there where wage inflation is occurring. I'm seeing high prices at the pump. I'm seeing high real estate prices. I'm seeing high food prices. Feels like inflation to me. Okay. So, you know, I always say, like, if, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, you know, it's probably a Buick. I, I, don't, I mean, like, come on, don't tell me that, guys. It's probably a duck. Right. So the Federal Reserve can can try to make it cute with the data, but we're all seeing it in real life here. So how do you slow an economy down where inflation's running away? Raise the interest you rates. Raise interest rates. How do you raise interest rates for treasuries? Change the supply and demand. That's the magic. That's absolutely correct, Matt. I feel like every week that I do this. I feel like supply and demand has just been an underlying theme. It it is the magic of economics. People it really want is. people want to overcomplicate this thing. Supply and demand is the fundamental building block, right? It's the basic. But all of the other stuff we talk about affects supply and demand. Sure. Right? So you're you're like, well, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Funny old euphemism since we're talking about China. <laughs> Hardy har har. And it's because something over there may influence the supply and demand curve and that changes the outputs right so if the federal reserve is buying a bunch of treasuries every month because the government is hungry right it spends more than it makes mm -hmm. right it spends more money than it brings in in taxes and probably spends more money than it can bring in in taxes if it collected everything it needed it would probably bankrupt the economy it's pretty close to it. and we're approaching the point where if interest rates go up at all the the debt may become unserviceable this is a different problem okay but the, and this is also not going to talk about this today if you want to talk about this one email us and and after the show we'll prep it for a future show this is one of the reasons that cryptocurrency is so fascinating yeah okay it's this whole supply and demand and where the government is 
at in its debt cycle and what it would look like if rates went up. Because some people would suggest that rates cannot go up very much because we are now structurally trapped by the debt that the government has taken on. There is so much debt that unless the economy can grow significantly, we can't service the debt based on tax I don't know if I agree with that crowd, but maybe I do. Yeah. So that's, nevertheless, it's that's why crypto has crypto's got a real life use case. Okay, the blockchain itself does. But oh, yeah. It's why the conversation continues to occur. But again, that's as far as we want to go today. If you want to hear more, email us at info at littlejohnfs.com and say, hey, we want to talk about crypto. Okay. So we're letting you vote with your email. And, and, and so info at littlejohnfs.com and let us know you want to discuss crypto more. But today, interest rates, Matt, Federal Reserve starts to taper. What happens? We already, we already went through this, didn't we? No. No. Oh, okay. We so, did at the break. Oh. What happens? So if the interest rates taper off. Not and, the interest rates taper off. The purchasing of treasuries. The Federal Reserve then the interest is, rate is would doing go quantitative up. easing. So, okay, yes. Yeah, the interest yes, rate would go up. To help our listeners understand, though, why does that happen? Okay, this is, uh, I'll, I'll walk everybody through. Yeah. This is easy, right? Uh, dear Matt, would you loan me some money? It depends. Good answer. Also, <laughs> like, thank you. Some people are, are just you like, credit worthy? Okay. Yeah, it's like, well, can I pay you back? Right? Yeah. How much money? And it's got to be over the inflationary rate. So if inflation's four percent, you know, yeah. I need because I said, Matt, I will you seven percent? Will you let me borrow money from you for ten years and I'll pay you one and a half percent? I would say no. Why not? Because That's the treasury rate over, right now. Inflation at maybe two percent a Come year. Come on, I'm for a nice guy. Years, Matt. That's twenty percent. So now I'm going to ask you for twenty five. So what you're telling me is you don't think that one and a half percent is going to outpace inflation? I do not. Oh my gosh, you're such a suspect. Well, well tell you what, what if I pay you three percent per year? Yeah, you know, instead of one and a half percent for per year for ten years, I'll pay three percent. That's double. Come on, man. I still think inflation's gonna. I mean, I. I well, now look. Would you I do got, it for three Scooby Snacks? How about four? Four. Let's Scooby negotiate snacks. this. Yeah. Okay. So this is you, so what's going on right now. Is this would be the equivalent of the auction marketplace? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what Matt's saying is, dude, I don't care how nice a guy you are. I'm not going to loan you money and get paid back with less purchasing power than I started with. That's a better deal for you than for me, right? And so you don't want to take that risk on. And yeah. neither does any sane investor. Right. So if the Federal Reserve is willing to show up and, and they say, well, we need it to be 1.5%, they go, well, we'll just keep buying it, even if nobody else will, to make sure the rate stays low. Right. We'll, we'll bid up the price of This is the equivalent of like going to a charity auction. And, and eventually like, they quit. We're going to sell like a bunch of nothing. Good, I'll take it for $10,000. And you're like, dude, it's worth like 4 bucks. $10,000, my final offer. You're like, okay, sold. Right, I mean, like basically, somebody bids up the price way out of line. That's what the Federal Reserve is doing with quantitative easing. If they stop buying, which is the taper, now the marketplace takes over. And Matt, you're telling me you won't buy a one and a half percent treasury? Not for ten years, right? Maybe for ten months. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't even know. <laughs> right now, I don't even know. I yeah. So the market's not stupid about that, and what's going to happen is it's going to say no, no. I don't trust you. I won't pay you that much. And then the price starts to drop. Mm -hmm. And this is what people kind of miss. I told Matt, what if I paid you more interest, right? Or, 
hey, I'll pay you 50 bucks a month back. And you go, I, I want to borrow, let, can I borrow $1,000 from you and I'll pay you 50 bucks a year for it? And you look at that and go, mm-hmm. and I said, well, what if I borrow $100 and pay you 50 bucks a year? Right, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting somewhere, right? Now you're making like buco returns here. That's Well, that's 50% return on my investment for a year. I ought to think about that. What happened was I had to lower my interest rate that I paid Matt didn't change. The amount of money I borrowed did. Mm-hmm. And remember, if you buy a bond, you're loaning money. You're loaning money to the government. So what you're telling the government is, I'm not going to loan you a thousand bucks to get paid one and a half percent per year. Right. I will loan you maybe seven hundred dollars to get paid one and a half percent of a thousand, which is closer to getting five or six percent now. So we've just effectively changed the interest rate in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Okay. If nobody's willing to buy the bonds, the price drops, and if the price drops, the 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 interest doesn't change because the the bond was sort of stated when it was issued, right? We knew when the bond is issued, it has a coupon. The coupon is going to happen. And so what changes is whether or not somebody's willing to buy the bond at a discount or a premium or at face value. And if the if the, if the economic conditions change, people don't pay face value for bonds anymore. They'll pay less. They'll pay a discount, but that coupon rate is unchanged, which means the effective yield on that bond goes up because people are not paying full price for the face value. Does that make sense, everybody? And while everybody out there should be nodding right now going, oh, so you're saying there's an inverse relationship between the price of the bond and the yield. I would say congratulations. You're one step closer to getting your securities license. (laughs) It's a fundamental principle of finance right now that we just learned together. So how does this affect China? Let's loop it back in. All right. Well, we know that real estate involves loans, and we know China's borrowed a whole boatload of money. And we know we got to take our last break. Oh, come on. I know. My gosh. Cliffhanger. Are you seriously going to make us We're almost there. And we will be right after this message. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, as you know, it's the third segment, home stretch of the True Well Show. Thanks for joining me and Matt today. Uh, Matt, when we left our heroes at the break, mm-hmm. we stranded everybody. We did. We left right? them on a real cliffhanger, I feel like. Yeah? So should we just talk about the weather now? Yeah, then we'll make them tune in next week. Just carry it out <laughs> the next week. Like, ha, you thought you were going to get how this you know, ties All together. Right. So nope. we were talking about interest rates, and we're talking about how – it affects like why this Chinese real estate company matters. And the reason it matters is because it is the scope of what's going on here. And so first of all, this company is really big. And second of all, what this sort of echoes in a weird way, not the same, right? History, as they say, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. Okay. And so 2008 markets in the United States, banking crisis, right? where we had real estate loans start to default and it cascaded. We had really low rates. We or we didn't necessarily have unusually low rates, but we had is um, we had lots and lots of loans and they were a lot of loans that were low quality 
and they were being packaged up and reinsured and then sold off as investments, right? Bundles of mm-hmm. mortgage-backed securities, MBSs, were packaged together and sold to pension plans and all over the place. Everybody was making money at this. This is when AIG, American Insurance Group, mm-hmm. was uh, reinsuring some of these mortgage-backed securities. Well, they started to see sort of, the, when I use that analogy of the sweater, when you start pulling on a thread and the whole thing starts to unravel, it's kind of what happened in the financial system. First, there was some changes to the way collateral for banks was accounted for. They did what they called mark-to-market accounting. Banks had things that were collateral, and they had to figure out what the value was in current market terms, but they weren't things that they could sell readily. It just so, wasn't liquid enough. Yeah, basically, they had to do a fire sale in order to get uh, pricing information. And then once the price at fire sale was published, it wasn't enough collateral for the banks. They were undercapitalized, and they didn't have enough on reserve to, to meet the legal limits. So they had to start trying to find money. And then they had a couple of loans. That, you know, some banks had loans that didn't pay, and all of a sudden it created a cascade where when one didn't pay, two or three others default, and all of a sudden the entire instrument failed. Right, This mortgage-backed bundle failed. You had lots of cascading failures in the banking system because of this collateral crisis. And once there wasn't enough collateral, things had to be forced to be liquidated in order to generate capital to get the reserve requirements. But they were forced at fire sale prices too low. They had to sell more stuff. It became this sort of uh, domino effect where everything just collapsed. Look at China right now. It's very similar. You have a giant real estate player that is embedded in hundreds of financial institutions. If they default, the question is, is it enough that it creates a capital crisis for the organizations that lent to them? And if it does, it's not a banking crisis that originates in the United States, but it is one that originates in China. And does that contagion ripple through the financial system? We may not have the direct impact, but it could still make its way overseas, right? If you drop a big enough rock in the ocean, the ripples can go a long way, mm-hmm. right? So an earthquake with an epicenter in China sends a tsunami that hits Hawaii and the West Coast. That could be real. Yeah, it really could. Okay, so that's the stuff that we're worried about is could we have that financial impact make its way here? Now, what do you do as an investor right now? That's going to be uniquely personal. I am not advocating that you freak out and go liquidate everything in anticipation of a market class. Because you know what you're doing then? You're a lemming, right? <laughs> That's, that is actually the kind of stuff that contributes to a market collapse. And historically speaking, it's the collapse times when there are opportunities. So during, you know, how many people wish they would have bought more in mid-March 2020? Right, March 20th, March 25th of yeah. 2020, when oh everything's on sale for 35% off, not only did the price recover, but it doubled from there. Would you like to have more than double your money from a year and a half ago? Well, the patient person that didn't flip out had that kind of experience. Right. So what can you do? Step one, don't freak out. Step two, right? call Little John Financial. <laughs> you can call us, sure. I mean, seek a more... Uh, seek somebody that's not emotionally compromised, right? Being clinical in any decision is good. I always say they don't let emergency room docs perform surgery on their own family. 
because you need to be clinical in that process. You don't want your emotions compromising your judgment. And that can happen in these circumstances when you have a bad day or two in the market after having months of pretty calm days, right? The last day that we experienced like we did on Monday was July. So we've had two and a half months of smooth sailing. And before that, arguably, most of the year, very narrow trading range. So we talk about all this, we extrapolate on what could happen because you should pay attention. Indeed. But you shouldn't freak out. And you shouldn't try to get, I am not advocating that you go out there and try to do anything radical. Again, since advice has to be personal, I can't tell you like, go do this on the radio. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, go speak with your financial pro or do your homework and figure out what your strategies should be perhaps in advance, right? It's good to have rules and discipline around the strategy rather than just going all willy-nilly and nutsy because you're flipping out. Okay? Indeed. A lot, lot of technical terms in that right there. <laughs> Look at that. I'm trying to put my headphones on and I got the... David, are you over there breaking stuff? Uh, you know me. So look, uh, the final thought here is not a final thought. It's just if you don't have that impartial party, find one. And if you don't have one, you are welcome to give us a call. Uh, we have an expression, not everybody becomes a client in our office. That's okay. But anybody that walks through the door, we want them to leave in a better spot than they came in. So if you don't have that uh, just second set of eyes, give us a shout and maybe we're a useful resource. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's somebody else that you already trust. The important thing is find them and utilize them. Okay. So Matt, have you figured it out yet? Because you know I'm going to ask I, I you. I think so. I think how it's do they reach us? Five four one three seven five zero eight nine eight. He got it. Oh All my right. gosh! There it, it is. It. And look, just in time. I think that the music is going to start playing, and they're going to send us out of here. All right, gang. Well, there you've heard it. Uh, again, if you want to hear about crypto, email us at info at littlejohnfs.com and let us know. If you have other questions that are personally relevant, just give our office a call at 541-375-0898. But we're out of time for now. So until next time, thanks for tuning in. This has been Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN.